Romans chapter number 8, and we'll be looking at verses 31 and 32. Verse number 31 and 32. So we have moved through 28, 29, and 30. And Paul says in verse number 31, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall not, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So understand, coming in again, coming into this, Paul says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Coming at this text with no kind of context, and that's what most people normally do. They come at this text with no context. Paul is seemingly saying something about nobody can be in against us. And, and it is what Paul's saying. But the context directly adjacent to this, before and after, have to be taken with this scripture to understand what Paul is saying. So understand that, and real quickly, I'll, I'll cover this real quickly and then and kind of get into the rest of it. But what Paul does in this verse is, is interesting, especially in this first verse. He says, he says, what shall we say then if God be for us, who can be against us? And if we were to look back at some of the other stuff that God has been saying through the inspiration to the Apostle Paul, he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of things. And that's one thing that I do want to make note of first before I get into the actual outline that I've written down. Paul basically tells us in verse number 28 what we're going to say to the what's or to the things that come. He said in verse number 28, and we, I know we've, we've covered this, but he said that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. So we see the all things. We see the what's in verse number 28. We have the assurance that the what's aren't going to be able to come against us. We have the assurance that the what's are there for a reason. But even a little step further than that, in verse number 31, he says, who can be against us? So we know from what Paul's saying in these, in these last verses in Romans chapter number 8, that the what's are covered and the who's are covered. And we're going to get into why that is. But he's, he's very specific. And that's one thing that's continually amazed me as we've gone through Romans, is how specific Paul is. And it's easy to miss when... If y'all, anybody's like me, I have a habit of reading things way too quickly. It's hard for me to stop and actually retain what I'm reading. That's, and this is neither here nor there. But if I'm going to read something and retain it, I almost have to hear it. That's why most of the books that I read are audiobooks. And even when I do read scripture, I typically am listening to it at the same time I'm reading it so that I can retain it better. But that's, that's what I have a habit of running, running very quickly across verses. And that's even whenever I read publicly, I try and slow down enough and try and pay attention to the punctuation that we're supposed to pay attention to in the English language because we can miss things. 
Simple things like that. That Paul is telling us who can be against us. My mind goes specifically to one who who is typically against us. And it's not the princip- it's not the, the people, it's the principalities and the powers that Paul talks about later on. But what Paul's telling us here in this scripture is he's telling us how we can endure, how we can get through things. And not things just the what's that happen to us, but how we can get through the who's. Namely, the, the, the devil, namely the demons that are under his employee, if you want to call it that. How we can get through those attacks. And Paul tells us in verse number 31 how we can do it. And he does it in three different ways. Verse number 31, 32, Paul tells us that the love of the Father is going to work to get us through the who's that are coming against us. The sacrifice of the Son is going to work toward the who's that are coming against us. And then thirdly, the divine provision of God is going to work against the who's that are coming against us. And that's how we're going to endure these things. The scripture uses that word endure. It uses the word patience. It uses the word perseverance. It uses a same similar word that tells us how we get through things. Back, I think it was in chapter number 6, Paul talked about tribulation producing perseverance or patience and patience producing hope and hope getting us through the tribulation again. It was that cycle that we had looked at that Paul had written down. And he's continuing that same principle, that same cycle here in verse number 31 and, 30, verse number 31 and 32. And again, he starts out, he's saying, what shall we then say to these things? Well, what things are Paul talking about? It's the things that we've been covering as we've gone down through the book of Romans. Number one, in verse number one, Paul said, There's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We're justified before God. There is no condemnation Secondly, verse number three, he says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So we have not only our justification and we're under no condemnation, we have the cross. We have Christ who came and took care of that condemnation. Verse number 12 tells us, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Verse number 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, but through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Paul's saying we've been given the Spirit to help us cut away that, that dead man that is tied to us. The one that we can't get off of us by ourselves. The one who Paul was asking to be freed from in chapter number 7. We have the Spirit in us helping us cut those things away. The Spirit working through the Word, which is sharper and living, more than a two-edged sword, is, is peeling away that old dead man that we carry around. Those habits that we carry around from that dead man that we're tied to. The Spirit helps us get rid of those things. Verse number 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness that we are the children of God. 
And even the verse above that, in verse number 15, it says we've been given the spirit of adoption. Wherefore, we cry, Abba, Father. We've been given a witness that we have been adopted. Verse number 28, which we covered a week or two ago. All things are working together for good to them that are called according to His purpose. And then even in verse number 29, we saw last week, Verse number 29, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to become conformed to the image of the Son, of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we've not only got the purpose in verse number 28, we've got a plan in verse number 29. So Paul is looking back over this entire chapter that we have, this entire thought that he's brought in chapter number 8. And he's saying, because of your justification, because of the cross, because of the Spirit helping you mortify the flesh, because of the witness of of your adoption, because of the purposes of God, and because of the plan that God has set forth, what shall we say to these things? All of these things, what are we going to say to them? And he tells us, if God be for us, Who can be against us? And that phrase, if God, is not a question. Not a question like we think of a question. It's not a question to say, well, if God's for us, who can be against us? But he's saying, in the form of a question, an answer. It's a rhetorical question. Paul's saying, God's for you. Nobody can be against you. It's the same question that I'll ask my kids, and they normally look at me confused. When I ask them a rhetorical, a rhetorical question, they just look at me confused because they think I'm asking a real question. And that's what we typically do with the Scriptures. There's a lot of times that God asks rhetorical questions, and us, just like the children of Israel in the book of Malachi, God said, have I not loved you? And they said, well, how have you loved us? That's what they did all through the book of Malachi. God asks a rhetorical question, and they come back with a smart aleck answer. And that's what we do. But Paul is not being smart, Alec. Paul's asking us a rhetorical question to help drive his point home. If God be for us, who can be against us? We could even look at it because Paul could have said, because God is for you, nobody can be against you. John chapter number 20 and verse number 17. I was looking up some of the cross-referencing to this scripture. And there was something that kind of blew my mind. And it's one of those things that, you, again, I've read across it before, but it never really stood out to me because I was reading across it and not actually reading it. But in John chapter number 20 and verse number 17, Jesus is in the garden. He's revealed himself to Mary. It says in verse number 16, Jesus said unto her, Mary... She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. When he spoke, she knew him. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascended unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's why... Nobody can be against us because in Christ, Christ himself has said, tell them I'm going to my father and your father. Tell them I'm going to my God and your God. 
He made everything personal to them. He was saying the same thing that Paul told us back a few verses when he said that the Spirit gives us the ability to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the one who tells us that He is our Father. And what we know about the Father and what we've talked about, again, even on Wednesday nights in terms of the Father's character is that our God is a God of love. Again, we mentioned it, well, I think it was this past Wednesday we mentioned it. You never read in the scriptures where God is specific things that people attribute to God. You don't see in the scripture where God says, I am this or I am that. We know that God is holy. But the Bible actually applies love to who God is. John said God is love. That's who He is. Anything outside of God is not love. And even taking that, that understanding into our text, if God is our Father and God loves us, then anything outside of Him coming against us is not something coming against us in love. And that's the big difference between being somebody being for you in love or against you outside of love. But that love, and again, we, we covered some of this Wednesday night, and I don't want to belabor that, that point, but that love that God is was the motivation for behind what He did. And that was what we were looking at and that's in terms of the gospel, why, what motivated the Father to give us the gospel. What motivated the Father to send His Son? And John 3.16 is plain about what motivated the Father to send His Son. Ephesians 1 is plain about what motivated the Father to send His Son. And that was His love. You see, God doesn't send Christ, according to the Scriptures, God doesn't send Christ so that He can love His people. He sent Christ because He loved them. The Bible doesn't say that God sent Jesus to the world so that He could get the sin out of the way and then love them. He said, for God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Even Romans chapter number 5 said that while we were sinners, God commended His love toward us. And how did He do that? He did it by sending Christ. The love of the Father is what will help us endure against the who's that can be against us. And Paul will go on to talk about those who's in verse number 38 and 39. We won't cover that tonight, but that's who Paul is talking about in this verse of Scripture. He talks about the what's and he talks about the who's and he explains those things in a little bit more in depth that he's covered in verse number 28 and he's going to be, or he, and he's covered in verse number 31. But again, that love is an origination of what God did. And the one thing that Paul said here, he said, if God be for us, who can be against us? The one thing that we do need to look at this in terms of those who have not trusted Christ is that if God be against us, who can be for us? And that's what we've, that's what we've got to get a hold of. That Even though for the Christian, for the believer... Nobody can be against us because God is for us. But for the unbeliever, that's the state that they're in. God, because of His justness, 
because of that portion of his character, has to be against sin. Or he's not just. A just judge has to be against sin. And so that judgment is already being poured out. And it will, especially what the scriptures tell us, is the, in the end of the days, it will be poured out. John told us in Revelation, he said that it will be poured out without mixture. When God pours out His judgment, now He pours it out in mercy. There's only two times in the Scripture we find that God poured out His wrath without mixture. And that was once on the cross and once at the end of the world. That's the two times He does it. He pours it out once on His Son. And the ones that didn't get in on that pouring out of His wrath, He pours it out again on them. And that's where we stand. And that leads us into the second point. Because if God is for us... Who can be against us because God has already poured out His wrath on His Son for us. But if we're not in His Son, then God will pour out His wrath on those in that day. And it will be without mixture. It will be the same wrath that He poured out upon His Son. But the difference is a human cannot take the wrath that God poured out on His Son in three hours. It will take all of eternity for Him to deal with that wrath. Because what he will do is continue to heap wrath upon himself throughout eternity. The scriptures tell us there will be gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth, if you look through the book of Acts, and I'll, I'll get back toward our text here in just a second. But if you look in the book of Acts, the Bible said whenever they got ready to stone Stephen, they gnashed at him with their teeth. The gnashing of the teeth in the scripture is anger. That's what it means. It conveys an anger. There will be those experiencing the wrath of God that will never see that they were wrong because they'll still be there in anger. They'll be sinning against God, experiencing the wrath of God. And according to Scripture, again, there will be those who know that they're there on Purpose. They know why they're there. They know that they should be there. I think even the rich man that you could you could probably argue that he knew why he was there. And if there was some way, and there's not, but if there was some way that I was deceived and I ended up in hell, I would know why I was there. If I went to hell, I would be one of the ones who are weeping because I know why I belong there. But the beauty is, because of point number two, the sacrifice of, our, of His Son, we know that we don't have to experience that wrath. We can't experience that wrath because Christ has already experienced it for us. It's just the trust in Him that places us in Christ. And we've covered that throughout these chapters in Romans. But He tells us again, verse number 31, If God be for us, who can be against us? And this is the reason why. Verse number 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the reason that God is for us, because he spared not his own son. This alluded to Genesis chapter number 22 and verse number 12. Genesis 22 and verse number 12, and we know the story. The story talks about a man named Abraham. 
and his son Esau, not Esau, as as what was his son's name? Isaac. Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. Esau was his grandson. And he wasn't the good grandson. Anyway, verse number 20, or chapter number, chapter number 22, verse number 12 of Genesis. And I'll be over there in just a second. Even this was mentioned this morning. God told us in the scriptures that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So God did show Abraham the gospel. Abraham knew what the gospel was. And he tells us in a way, in a picture, what the gospel was in this text. But in verse number 12, chapter number 22, it says, and again, this is, this is right before Abraham gets ready to slay his son. The angel of the Lord came down out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, Here am I. In verse number 12, he said, And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine own son from me. The word withheld that God uses there in chapter number 12 is the same word that we find in chapter number 32. The word spared. Said that he spared not his own son. God was saying to Abraham that he knew that he was not going to spare Isaac. Abraham wasn't just making a show because Abraham told the men that were with him, and he makes the statement later on that even if he would have slew Isaac, that that promised seed would not die. Abraham understood. That was the faith that Abraham was not stumbling over. That even though it had taken years and years in him for him to see that seed, that God had been true to his word, and that even if he killed Isaac, God would somehow revive him, resurrect him. Somehow that seed would come back. Abraham knew that. But it's the same word that we find. And that's what God did. It said when it came down to it, and God was ready to... Basically, to take the knife, so to speak, to his son, there was nobody there to say, don't do this, because it had to be done. With Abraham and Isaac, there was nothing other than a picture of the gospel that had to be done. There was no atonement that was going to take place with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was a sinful, flawed man, and so was his son, because they both were children of, Abraham, of, of Adam. But there was a perfect sacrifice and God did not hesitate when he got ready to pour out his wrath on his son. It's the sacrifice of the son that shows us these things. One of the things, in, again, in studying some of this, and uh, we'll turn over to Matthew 26 real quick. And I know I'm, I'm turning a few places tonight and even I should have probably written these down or Put them somewhere, and I would have my pen wouldn't ran out of ink, so I'm gonna blame it on that tonight. Um, it's uh, maybe a little bit of wishful thinking, but chapter number 26 of Matthew, we'll get turned over there real quick. I noticed God didn't spare Christ when it came down to it, 
And we know, we know what happened. But he wasn't spared. But in verse number 39 of Matthew chapter number 26, the Bible says that Christ went, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Then over in Luke, Luke's account, chapter number 22, verse number 44, we can see and understand some of the, the stress and the inward struggle that Christ was going through. Verse number 44 tells us, chapter number 22, said, in being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And I understand that we know these texts, but God didn't spare his son even when his son asked to be spared. And we don't understand. I, I can't stand here and tell you I understand how all of this works out in the scripture. How does God incarnate how his mind worked? Did, did Christ have all of his attributes? Did he lay some of those attributes aside? I don't know all these things. But what I do know is that the gospels recorded for us that Christ prayed that the cup pass from him if possible. But that applies specifically to us in a specific way. We understand that God didn't spare His own Son. Even though His Son asked to be spared, we understand that their fellowship that they had, that what God did is He had to separate Himself from His Son. For three hours on the cross, God had to turn His back on His Son. The Trinity... The Godhead had never been separated throughout all eternity, but because of his love for a fallen man, he separated himself from himself. And that was what, that was what Christ was trying to have passed from him. It wasn't necessarily all the physical side of things that Christ was having, trying to have passed from him because it was a spiritual agony that he had. He was going through something inside because he knew this separation was going to happen. Psalms chapter number 22 and the Gospels both tell us that Jesus cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He doesn't cry out during being beaten. He doesn't cry out during being put on the cross. When he cries out, it's because he was separated from his father. But he was separated from his father so that we would never have to be separated from our father. What Christ did for us in this text, it shows us the depths of the obedience that has been applied to our account. We've been reckoned righteous. We understand all those terms. Paul tells us that we are now righteous because of what God has done. Our sin is taken away. We're back up to ground zero, so to speak. But we have been given the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness that we have been given of Christ was even a righteousness that obeyed the Father and submitted to the will of the Father when everything in Him wanted to be spared. When everything in Him wanted that to pass from Him, He went through with it because of the will of the Father. 
because of the love of the Father for a fallen man. Specifically at the cross, again, the love of the Father was separated from the Son. Jesus did something on the cross for us that assures us no matter what and who we go through, we cannot be separated from God. What He does on the cross, He had to believe that God loved Him even when the circumstances didn't seem like it did. Even when everybody around Him was hating Him and seemingly God had turned His back on Him, He believed the Father loved Him. Secondly, the circumstances pointed to the alternative of that, but not only did He believe that, He put His trust into the Father's plan. He believed perfectly so that we could be assured perfectly. This was part of what Christ endured so that we can endure. One, when God looks at us, when we're faithless, when we don't trust as strongly as we should, when we can't figure out what God's doing and we seemingly say, God, why is these things going on? God doesn't see that in us. What God sees is His Son, who through all of what He went through, had a perfect faith, a perfect belief, and a perfect obedience in being separated from His Father. What we have been given in Christ is that assurance that God will never be separated from us because God sees us obeying Him even through all that because of what Christ did. That's why we can endure through those things. We have a Father who loved us, and it was the sacrifice of the Son that He did not spare. But the Bible even says in verse number 32 that He delivered up for us. means He didn't not only withhold Him from being crucified, He gave Him to be crucified. That's Again, we can go back to John 3.16 and see that. He gave His Son... He didn't just not stop what was going to happen. He delivered him. The book of Acts tells us that that was his plan. He ordained that these things happened. Even Stephen tells the Pharisees, they said, he basically tells them, your fathers got rid of the people who spoke the word of God to you, and you got rid of the word of God himself. And he tells them, even in doing all that, you step right into the plan of God because that's what God's plan was originally. In trying to get out of the plan of God, you enacted the plan of God. But God delivered him up for us all. And that's when Paul says, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And that word with him. It explains what Paul's talking about. There is a practical application in this text where God is not going to withhold His grace from us. God is not going to withhold what He has promised to us. He's not going to withhold those things. But that even goes, it even goes a little bit step farther. The word freely in our text, it's the word, and get this, I don't understand all the ins and outs of Greek. I don't, I'm not, don't claim to, but there are men who are smarter than me that wrote all these things down. 
But the word freely, it's a conjunctive word in Greek is what I've read. And it's the word grace and the word forgiveness that's put into one word. So where we have those conjunctive words that I can't recall any to mind right at this minute. But we have conjunctive words where you take two words, you put them together, and you can tell what they mean because of the two words put together. And that's what that word was. That's what that word freely give us all things. In essence, what Paul is saying, not only is God going to freely give us all things so we can endure through these things, but he's not preaching some kind of prosperity gospel. He's not saying that because God didn't do these things, he's going to give you anything that you want and everything that you want. But it goes a little bit farther than that. Because of the words that Paul uses here, he's not only freely giving us those graces of God, but grace is forgiving all things as well. And that's what Paul's conveying in the context. He's talking about not sparing his son. He did not spare his son just so that he could give us things. God didn't send Christ to the cross so that we can drive new cars or have nice clothes or live in big houses or be popular among financially stable people. God sent His Son to the cross to forgive us. It was grace that enacted these things. And that's why Paul used this word, grace and forgiveness. Because if He spared not His Son and delivered His Son, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? He is forgiving us of everything that we've ever done. All things. And this takes us back to the who that is against us. What does Satan oftentimes do? He comes and he says, did God really say? That's what he's done his entire career. Satan says, did God say this? Are you really saved? Does God really love you? Look at what's happening around you. My goodness, God can't love you and allow these things to happen in your life. God can't love you and allow these circumstances to have happened in the way that they happened. But that who can't be against us because God has forgiven us all things because God loves us. Again, Paul is using these arguments with a force that we don't even catch most of the time because we don't stop and read the text. And that's the reason that we preach through books of the Bible. That's the reason we do this, because we can actually stop and pay attention to what Paul is saying and not miss what he's trying to convey. So we see the love of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and thirdly, we have the divine provision. And this is where my pen ran out of ink. So... Again, the word is forgiveness. And what this points us all back to is we have been given the provision that John tells us about in chapter number 1. He says that Christ is there as our advocate ready to forgive us of all of our sins. Legally speaking, they have all been forgiven. The word confess in 1 John, I know we've covered this before, but the word confess, it means to agree with. Basically, all we're doing is saying, you are right and I'm wrong. That's what we did when we, when we were saved. What did we do? We, told, we basically confessed with our mouth, God's right and we're wrong. 
The work's done. We can stop doing it. That's what we're saying with our mouth. In our heart, we believe, and the belief produces a confession. It's what Romans 10 will tell us here in probably about six or eight months. <laughs> but that's what we have. We are agreeing with God. And we can't agree with God because of what Paul tells us here in chapter number 8. He freely gives us all things, and He is freely forgiving us all things. There's nothing being withheld from us in Christ, but there's also nothing being held against us in Christ. That's the reason that Paul says what he does. Who can be against us? If somebody comes and accuses us of anything... God looks and says, I don't know what you're talking about. When Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren, comes and says, look what they did. God looks over at Christ. And Christ says, nothing there. It's done. It's taken care of. It's paid for. It's, Paul, I, I love what Paul does in the book of Colossians. He uses the word expunged. When he talks about our debt being taken away. Whenever they would expunge something, it means to take it off of the record. We know what we did. We know when, when Satan comes and says, look what they did, look what they did. We know we did it. But as far as the record goes, there's no record. I'll tell you something, I, I, I sped a little bit for a section of time going to work last week. I know I did that. But if you go to the courthouse in Mecklenburg County, they have no record. There's no record that I did that. That's the reason nobody can be against this. There can be nobody in Mecklenburg County come to me and say, you need to pay a fine for speeding the other day. There's no record. Did I do it? I did. Do we sin every day? We do. There's no record now. Because he spared not his own son. Because he delivered his own son. And because he's freely forgiving us through his son. And it doesn't just say through his son. He said with him also. We have the love of the Father. We have the sacrifice of the Son. And they're speaking together. They're not even contrary to one another. Again, God and Christ are both agreeing that we've been forgiven of everything. And just the fact that we've been forgiven is what drives us to understand that what verse 16 said was true. That the Spirit helps us to mortify those, those deeds. And that's the difference between where that that doctrine that Paul talks about in verse number six lead or chapter number six leads us into. If you remember chapter number five, Paul tells us what the gospel does, that we have that super abounding grace that we've been given. And he says, What shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We don't continue in sin because of the Spirit. Verse number 16. The Spirit's Giving us the power to take care of those. See, if, if I know in my mind, because I'm sinful, if I know that there will never be any record of me speeding in Mecklenburg County, what am I going to do tomorrow? 
I'm going to be running about 80 in Mecklenburg County. Anybody stops me, there's no record of that. But that's not even what salvation is. Practically speaking, there it will never be any record, but we've been given the Spirit that is helping us get rid of those things. Practically speaking. And that's how God, and again, that... In closing, that's, that's how God is working in us. The who's, they can't be against us because of the love of the Father. What enacts that, what made it so that they can't be against us is the sacrifice of the Son. But we have the work of the Spirit too. It's, it's a triune work in our salvation and in our sanctification. The reason that we can rest in Christ without going around and sinning just because we want to all the time with no consequences is because we have the Spirit. And that's what Paul is conveying and he will continue to convey in chapter number 8. We have this triune work that's going on in us. But what Paul wants us to understand and what Paul wants us to make sure that he is conveying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter number 8 is that no matter what things happen in our life, according to verse number 28 and 29, they're happening for a purpose because God planned for them to happen. They're conforming us to the image of His Son and they will take place ultimately in our glorification. So the Watts have no kind of ability to do anything against us. The who's have no ability to do anything against us. Again, we've covered why that is. And he takes this a little bit farther in verse number 32. But what we are, what we are missing most of the time in texts like this is what Paul is giving us specifically. Even And again, that's why we don't take verses and run all over the place with them. Because of what he did, we have rest. That rest produces in the spirit that participation. And I, again, we've covered that. But that's why we believe the way that we believe. Chapter number eight. Again, I, I, know, it's, I know it's been called by different people the greatest chapter in the Bible. But it's because all of these truths converge in one place. God loves us. He didn't spare His own Son. He delivered His own Son for us. And Paul is taking those things and he's, again, pointing them back to all those verses that we've read through chapter number 8. What are we going to say to all of those things? What are we going to say to there being no condemnation? What are we going to say to the Spirit working in our lives? What are we going to say to the Spirit of adoption that bears witness in us? What are we going to say to all of those things? It's that God's for us. And that's what we're taking away. That's what we take away from this text. God is for us. No matter who's against us, no matter even most days we're against ourselves, God is for us. In, in, in all of those ways that we've looked at, He's for us in everything that we go through. And everybody that we go up against, and even in our own 
deadness that we try to get rid of. He's for us and all those things. And that's when we have the confidence from chapter number eight. God loves us and he's for us. When I'm, when I know I'm not lovable, when I don't love myself, when I'm guilt ridden, I can come to this text and know that God's for me. When Lindsay is mad at me because I've been a sorry excuse for a husband. When my kids are upset with me because I've acted in anger towards them. God's still for me then. God's for me so much then. He's not only forgiven me in Christ, freely forgiven me in Christ. Nothing I even have to do to gain that forgiveness. But He's so much for me that He is through the Spirit helping to remove those things. Putting things into my life to make me conform to the image of His Son. Putting people in my life who come against me for the same reason to conform me to the image of His Son. The reason that me and Lindsay disagree sometimes is because God put us together so we could conform each other to the image of Christ. The reason that God put the co-workers in my life that He's put in my life the ones that seemingly come against me on a daily basis, same reason. Everything he's doing for that same purpose that we looked at last week to make us look like Christ, to make us match the preeminent one so that we can be those trophies of grace that we've talked about. That's why he does these things. And we can have the understanding and the hope. And we can endure through everything because God is for us. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for an opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you for an opportunity to open your word. Thank you for an opportunity, Lord, to 